The reading for today's sermon comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labour we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way that I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray together, shall we? Merciful and gracious God, we thank you for so visiting us by your Spirit that we are not left in the dark, for being present with us, for speaking these words to us and directing us in the way of Christ-likeness. And we thank you particularly for this letter to the Thessalonians, for all that we've learned from it and all that we anticipate hearing today. Would you please renew and reshape us as we seek once again to get practical in relation to the details of the issues that Paul raises here so that we may be a church that increasingly glorifies Christ by mirroring him to the world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take a seat. Let me add my welcome uh, to you and particularly those of you who are visiting today. Um, uh, thank you for your forbearance with some of the technical issues which uh, you may have uh, already been told about. Um, if you're at home, well, we're glad that you're able to be with us, albeit by Zoom, and we hope and pray that that carries on working. I want to begin today, if I may, with a history lesson. There is a reason for this, which will become apparent. It may take a minute or two just to bring us all up to speed with some 19th century European politics. I want to introduce you to Otto von Bismarck, one of the most significant figures in that period of political history. Born in 1815, Bismarck held a series of increasingly senior government posts from 1847 onwards. He was a member of a broadly conservative kind of movement in German politics. He actually helped forge a plan for the unification of Germany, which before that time was just sort of two dozen or more sort of disparate provinces. He was finally appointed by Kaiser Wilhelm I to the most senior position of all, the newly formed post of Chancellor of the German Empire. But our friend Otto von Bismarck had a problem. The socialist SDP, or Social Democratic Party, was quite strong, agitating for revolution. At the extremes of that party, there were lots of young Marxist men who really would like to do something with um, the emperor and his new chancellor, if they could just get their hands on him. 
And so what was he to do? What was the newly appointed chancellor to do about it? Well, the first thing he tried was just a fairly blunt instrument. He uh, adopted a series of anti-socialist laws. So he made it illegal for any meetings or associations connected with the STP to exist and to take place. He outlawed trade unions. He banned socialist newspapers. He even banned the STP logo. You weren't allowed to wear it in public. Didn't work. The Socialist Party continued to grow in popularity. They still had seats in the Reichstag, which is a German parliament. And so he hatched a different plan. History knows Bismarck as a consummate politician. His plan was that if he couldn't get rid of the SDP by banning it, he would simply make it redundant by adopting all of its policies himself. And so over a period of several years in the 1880s, he launched this ambitious program of welfare programs, government-sponsored and compulsory welfare programs, which led to, yes, you guessed it, the first example of a welfare state in a modern post-industrialized society. There was mandatory sickness insurance, mandatory accident insurance, mandatory disability insurance, and yes, you guessed it, given the title of today's sermon, a mandatory state-sponsored retirement scheme. Some of his conservative allies were a bit unnerved by this. They pointed out, you know, you're just adopting the policies of the opposition here. What's going on? In a famous speech in 1881 to the Reichstag, Bismarck said, quote, call it socialism or whatever you like, it's all the same to me, unquote principled politics at its very best. And actually, that reveals what was going on. This was not actually a program of concern for the poor or for the workers. It was an attempt to retain some kind of popular support by doing an end run around his political opponents. One of his biographers, Jonathan Steinberg, offers this frank assessment and quote, it was a calculation. It had nothing to do with social welfare. He just wanted some kind of bribery to get social democratic voters to abandon their party. And so the modern welfare state was born in the cynical and manipulative attempt of a conservative, quote-unquote, politician to beat his socialist opponents by stealing their thunder. Can't imagine anything like that happening today, isn't it? In fact, it's actually quite hard to overestimate the significance of Bismarck's social revolution. If you think about the modern political playbook, this is just what it is. I mean, just to be serious for a moment, it's, it isn't quite buying votes, is it? But it's um, promising free stuff today, paid for by people who aren't born yet, in effect. But I want to focus really just on one aspect of what Bismarck did, the social revolution that he began with his retirement program. This was actually particularly deceitful in the sense that it wasn't at all intended to do by Bismarck, what it, the, the thing on the tin, so to speak. Um, really, his goal was to reduce unemployment among the young Marxist revolutionaries by forcing men in their later years to retire, so creating more vacancies, because he reasoned rightly, as it turns out, that young Marxists, if they have an actual job, it's kind of harder than f hard for them to organize the revolution. Um, but really what's happened since then is this revolution in social attitudes to later life has ripped through the entire Western world like wildfire. He created the modern idea of retirement as a social norm, followed in other countries, obviously, in the US in 1920, the um, Civil Service Retirement Act in 1935, FDR's Social Security Act. There was all the legislative frameworks which kind of 
percolated through other countries as they saw, oh, yeah, this could be quite useful here as well. And it gathered pace in the post-war era with a massive increase in personal wealth. So now it's possible in the last maybe really three generations, three or four generations, for people to save financially into private retirement funds, like I guess probably most of us here do or try to do. So we're able to support the state-sanctioned framework with our own resources also. And so the end result is that we are now in and actually part of a culture where the basic expectation, the basic aspiration, the basic desire of working people is to get to the point where they can stop working. Retirement basically invented by Bismarck to outdo his socialist opponents, has become what nearly all of us, without realising it, are tempted, at the very least, to aspire to. Retirement in the sense of not working anymore. And meanwhile, our friend the Apostle Paul, author of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, is spinning in his grave the implications for the church. You recall the context um, from which today's reading came. If you've been here for the last uh, few weeks, you'll know um, we've been looking through this letter. This is a, a warm and encouraging letter to a young church written just a few months after its founding uh, during Paul's second missionary journey uh, in the 50s AD. And really, the, the first letter to the Thessalonians is warm and positive with just a couple of glimmers of what here become a much sharper rebuke. The only real criticism or censure anywhere in either letter is right here, and it's summarized, you might say, in verse 6. We command you, brothers, if you've got your Bibles, then please do open them again. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. You see again in verse 11, we hear that some among you are walking in idleness, not doing anything. Well, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Verse 14, if anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, take note of him, note who he is, have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. He should be exposed publicly, not totally disassociated with. This isn't yet excommunication because verse 15, don't regard him as an enemy but as a brother, but he should be embarrassed among you. Everybody who is walking in idleness should be ashamed, which clearly has some kind of implications for what Bismarck invented and we're all, well, are we looking forward to retirement? Isn't it time we took a look at this modern institution? And as ever, the... Um, the real picture is somewhat complicated. There are actually, in biblical terms, some positive aspects to retirement. It's not, I'm not going to be saying the whole thing is a bad idea and all the things that we're all doing in preparation for it are wrong. Quite the contrary. I want to start with some positive comments and then I'm going to raise some of the critiques that flow from things we've seen before in this letter and, and from what we read today before making some suggestions. Um, about underexplored opportunities. It, it just seems likely to me that probably in here is a sort of tangled mixture. I don't think every Christian is guilty of every sin in the Bible. Obviously not. But it's very likely that we may have imbibed some of the assumptions of our ungodly secular culture, including in this area in relation to retirement. So let's just think about these positive aspects first. If you'll permit me, just bear with me a second. I want to highlight first two really positive aspects of retirement as we probably 
think about it. First, in keeping with precisely the teaching of this letter itself, saving to provide for our own old age infirmity is a wise and godly way of providing for ourselves. Just look at what Paul says. The central theme of this part of the letter about providing for ourselves and for others who are dependent on us, yes? So look, verse 10. If a man won't work, let him not eat. The point is that you ought to be providing for yourself. In verse 12, um, literally, um, we command and encourage such persons to do their work quietly and, quote, eat their own bread. The, the point being that you should eat what you've produced. And it's interesting, in a, a modern context, which perhaps was not foreseen by the Apostle Paul, where we've had a massive increase in life expectancy. The average life expectancy has gone from less than 40, 160 years ago, to pushing 80, even with a kind of COVID dip. It's still 76 or 77 in the US. It's much more likely that more of us can expect to live longer on average than people did in at the biblical period and in earlier times in more modern history. But that increased age frequently brings with it diminished physical capacity, doesn't it? And d- diminished um, uh, memory, all these kinds of things. Things that just make it harder to carry on doing the job that you did from 20, 30, 40, 50. And there's, there's nothing to be ashamed of in that. Nothing at all. But what's the wise thing to do? What's the godly thing to do? Somebody who was reading this and taking it really seriously, thinking, well, I, I shouldn't be just waiting for social security handouts or hoping that the church will pick up the tab. I should be planning to look after myself and my own family. What would I do? Well, I might think I probably ought to save in case I have to stop working remuneratively because I can't keep a job anymore because of uh, physical illness or something like that. It'd be a wise and godly thing to do, to save for our later years. You can contrast it, of course, with what somebody might do if they weren't doing that. You can imagine the kind of self-indulgent 20, 30, 40-year-old who's not thinking about the future and is spending extravagantly on all kinds of things that more prudent men and women are not spending on because they're saving for their future. They're realizing we've got to provide for ourselves. And you do sort of think, well, you know, who's, who's going to pick up the tab for you when you, you know, are unable to provide for yourself anymore? It would be a godly thing to do to be more restrained so that we're able to provide both for ourselves and for others who are dependent on us. Just side note, of course, this all keys into the discussion that I prompted last week in talking to younger people about career plans. It's not the case that the only thing you should think about is how much money you should make. Of course not. But it is interesting that we've baptised all the other motives for choosing one particular job over another, so passion particularly, and... Somebody who says, well, actually, I, I want to think how I can make as much money as I can so I can provide for a family in an increasingly expensive part of the world. We might be inclined to think, oh, that person's all dangerous motives. It's like, well, maybe they're just being prudent. Maybe it would be really wise for you younger people to think about that. And one of the temptations, of course, is when you're 16 or 17, if you can earn $100 a week mowing lawns, that's like tons of money. Isn't it? I mean, it's like, wow, more money than I know what to do with. But let me tell you, it's not enough money to raise a family on. And so part of the challenge is to see past the early opportunities for work and realise you need to expand them, as indeed some of our young men are doing. So that's the first thing. Second, there's something else positive about how we conceive of retirement, it seems to me. It seems to me a potentially a godly and sacrificial context for postponed leisure activities. Let me explain what I mean. I, I'm privileged 
to have one or two relatives in my extended family who are somewhat elderly. And you probably have people like this in your family as well. Or you can imagine people like this who are somewhat elderly who have for years or maybe decades sacrificed and worked and withheld from themselves luxury vacations and expensive hobbies and so on so they could provide for their children. Do you know people like that? I, I know people like that. We have, Nicole and I have, we have a handful of relatives like that in our family. Some of you have met a couple of them. And I, I would absolutely not want to begrudge such a faithful, sacrificial father or mother some more extended and expensive leisure time in their 70s or 80s. Right? We wouldn't do that, would we? Wouldn't, wouldn't you want to be able to say to your mum and dad, listen, what, why don't you go and take that vacation that you never took when you were younger because you were scraping and saving and working as hard as you could to provide for us as your kids. Thank you for doing that. We'd love you. Don't, don't just keep it all as an inheritance. Spend some of it. Wouldn't we want to say that? I think there is something good about that. In that context where it's the, the long-term fruit of a life well-lived, given in the service of others. I don't think we should be embarrassed about that. I don't want retired people to feel embarrassed, retired people, to feel embarrassed if they take vacations that the rest of us don't take because we've got kids to look after. That's fine. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not wanting to... This isn't a beat-up-the-retired sermon, okay? Otherwise, I'd have made that the title and just come out with it, right? So I think um, it's possible to have a very positive view of retirement where we think, you know, I'm going to work, I'm going to sacrifice, I'm going to look after those who are dependent on me. And if the Lord provides, when I'm older and some of those responsibilities have grown up and have children of their own and they're able to look after themselves, if we have some resources left, yeah, of course. It'll be a good and wonderful way to receive God's blessings in those later years of life. So retirement could be a very positive thing viewed in those ways. But... You could all hear the butt coming, right? How could this go sideways? What are some negative aspects? And again, this is going to draw on 2 Thessalonians and other parts of Scripture that we've um, been reflecting on. I can think of at least three ways in which this could go badly wrong. And the first is the most obvious one. The retirement viewed as just the cessation of work for the sake of leisure pursuits and hobbies and just self-indulgence could actually be a way of denigrating the goodness of work itself. Remember last week, I talked quite a lot about the goodness of work as a gift from God. We have this breathtaking privilege where God has placed us in the world as, well, in, really in Genesis 1 terms, as kings and queens, rulers. Let them rule under him. God rules the world, and his purpose in history is to have godly men and women ruling the world. And the name for the activity by which we rule the world, by which we cultivate the fields, by which we draw out all the latent goodness within creation, the name for the activity by which we do that is work. That's what work is in theological terms. It is partnering with God in his program to bring out of the created order all of the latent goodness that he has buried there. I had a, a conversation a couple of weeks ago, some of you listened to it, it was on the podcast with David Barnson, who's a Christian and a 
a wealth manager and he's done a lot of thinking about work as well as about his professional um, pursuit. Um, and one of the things, he actually said, I can't remember the exact phrasing, it was words to the effect of, work is the purpose of life. And I agree with him. From one perspective, what we're here to do is to work. Now, he's, he also said he's not disagreeing with the Westminster Shorter Catechism's answer about what the purpose of life is for, to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. It's for that as well. But how do we do that? Well, precisely by participating in what God has, what God has done. So what a tragedy, what a tragedy it would be if we had this vision of our most mature years, that the years of your life where you should be most godly, most stable, most thoughtful as Christians, to step back from work, to step back from precisely what we were put here for. Wouldn't that be bizarre? If all the most mature and godly Christians in the room were reneging on this privilege and responsibility. I, a friend of mine was talking about this last week. Um, he quoted Genesis 3.19, which doesn't say until your government tells you to quit and doesn't say until your investments reach the desired amount. It says until you return to the ground. That's what it says. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the ground. And that is a, a sentence passed on Adam by the living God. It's also how God blesses Adam from that point on, precisely by giving him the ongoing privilege of working, which is going to be difficult because sweat of your face, but is nonetheless a privilege. So that's the first way this could go wrong. So no surprise then that we do find widespread uh, evidence in some of the social science literature and certainly anecdotal evidence. We've all come across the, the story of somebody who was you know, active and vivacious and energetic and thoughtful and engaged in their work and then they retired and a couple of years later, yes, we've, we've all heard those stories. And I, I'm, not, I'm not here to sell you social science meta-analyses. I'm just saying, like, to the extent that that's true, it's absolutely no surprise because it's exactly what we should have predicted given Genesis 1, given 2 Thessalonians 3 which says that it's, it's a good thing to provide for ourselves. So that's the first way it could go wrong. Second way, that retirement industry, my goodness, let's rename it, shall we, the covetousness industry. Yeah, the, the wow, my, my goodness, did you see how much John made last month? And so you call it your fund manager. Well, I've got a friend who made 28% in three and a half weeks from some shiny object or whatever it is. Do you think you could match that for me? And it, and it becomes a keeping up with the Joneses industry, right? And Jesus has a word or two about that. Remember, we're reading from Luke's gospel in our gospel readings at the moment, but just remember a couple of chapters before his parable of the rich fool, which starts off as him obviously being covetous in the sense that, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus switches from the actual mechanics of this transaction that the man wants help with and says, well, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. He tells a story of a man who says to himself, I'll, what shall I do? I've got, I've got so much money, I've got nowhere to store it all. I've got so many crops, I've got nowhere to put them. So I'm going to build more and add to them. And then, then I'll be able to say, soul, you have ample goods laid up. Relax, take it easy, eat, drink and be merry. Fool, Jesus says. This life, this night, pardon me, your life will be demanded of you. Then, then what's, who's going to get what you've saved for yourself and then he says the, the crunch at the end of the parable 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And I'm afraid to say that the industry which Bismarck plus our economic prosperity has bequeathed to us is very rich towards ourselves, isn't it? And isn't it possible? To, so you, it's such a fine line. In fact, it's not really a line, is it, between the, I'm just going to check, just to just see how you know, responsible, check the investments and make sure they're doing all right and meet with my financial advisor and figure out whether I'm saving enough to, I'm just going to go check the barns and make sure there's enough in there to stuff everything into it that I'm going to need. Yeah? Can you, and it's not, the interesting thing is the line is not measured in dollars. The line is measured in the motives of the heart. Right? It's, it's very possible to be covetousness and poor. To be covetous and poor. I, I could introduce you to some uh, tragic, and of course it's possible to be covetous and rich, because it's just possible to be covetous. And so one of the things, one of the challenges we have to do is to watch our hearts. What, what are we trying to accomplish? And not baptize greed by saying, oh, I'm just trying to provide for the grandchildren, you know. Third way in which modern retirement could go really badly sideways. And I, I puzzled for ages about how to, how to put this, because I don't want to offend anybody unnecessarily. Um, but I fear it may be inevitable. Um, so I'll just say it, okay? And please know that I, I love you, and um, especially those of you who are older than me, okay? I love you. So do your children and grandchildren, but there is a grave danger that you may become a nuisance in your retirement to precisely the people who you would love to well, spend more time with the children and grandchildren. Now, what do I mean by this? Look, look at verse 6. Look with me. Keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. Now, what does idleness mean? Well, you remember I mentioned last week in verse 7 where Paul repeats the, the term, we were not idle. He uses a word there and in, in verse 6 as well which has to do with um, military desertion. It's used elsewhere in the corpus of Greek literature. So it's, it's somebody who's not doing what they ought to do and is doing something that they ought not to do. And it's more transparent, actually, in verse 11. Look, um, not busy at work, but busy bodies. It's one of those happy moments where the English translation perfectly captures a, a really elegant wordplay in the Greek text. Not busy at work, like you should be, but busy bodies. Always got your nose in somebody else's business and you stop being a blessing and you start to be a pain in the neck. Look, grandma and grandpa is very rarely a full-time job. Let's say it like that. But no, your grandchildren and your children are not going to begrudge you. In fact, they're going to welcome the opportunity for you to spend more time with them and their Children, then you might have to if you had to carry on working to support yourself. They'll love that. They'll welcome that. But you could get in the way. Right? You, when your children, those of you who, are, who have children and grandchildren, when, when your children got married, remember that leave and cleave thing in the marriage service? So what that means is they, they establish their own household now and what we don't want to happen is that the potential blessing of retirement where granny and granddad have more time 
and can, and can enjoy that time with the extended family starts to become a disruption to precisely the structures that God has put in place. It's really tragic when you hear parents talking about not wanting to live too close to their own parents. Because what that says is their own parents, the grandparents, don't get it. Yeah? Are you with me? It, it is necessary to, to just pause for a second and think, well, what, what, what is a wise and fruitful and helpful and sensible and godly amount of time to have with my children and grandchildren when they're older? And it's not obvious. And here's the problem. I'm not saying anything about anybody's particular circumstances. I'm simply indicating that this is where the ditch is, roughly, on that side of the road. Yeah? It's equally tragic when parents and grandparents care nothing for their children and grandchildren. Right? That's tragic too. But the particular danger that the modern capacity to enjoy retirement on saved income gives us, the particular temptation is really to get in the way and to be a nuisance. Well, don't, maybe there's some honest conversations you have to have. That'd be really good to do, wouldn't it? What, what would be a good amount of time and, and a good sort of framework for spending time with the children and grandchildren and anticipate that that would be really welcomed if you're the grandma or the granddad? And it, I bet it will be because it will indicate a kind of a way of honouring and loving the new family in the next generation. And all of that then leads to the third point because it seems to me there are some un unexplored or underexplored opportunities. And I'm not going to be able to go through, hey, all, here's all the things you could do. That's not the point of what I want to say today. What I want to do is to give you a framework very briefly as we finish for thinking through, well, what, what could we think about? In, if we get to the point where I no longer have to work in order to provide money to live. Let's suppose you've you've been blessed financially to a sufficient point that you have savings and investments and pension income and so on, that you don't have to work for money anymore, what do you do? And I want to suggest there's many, many, many things you could do. Really, the, the underlying issue here is that the doctrine of vocation has been somewhat misunderstood among Reformed Christians. So what happened in the, during the Reformation period, people rediscovered the dignity of the secular vocation it was recognized that the Lord is pleased and delighted with the cobbler and the blacksmith and the carpenter and the farmer, just as he is with, potentially, godly priests and prelates and cardinals. Yeah, previously, if you're already sold out for Jesus, you have to go and get ordained, because Jesus doesn't really care about all those other things. But the, the reformers realized, no, God cares about the whole of creation, so it's possible to honor him in every calling. But then what happened in the modern appropriation of that is that that calling got reduced to just what I do for money. My job. Which is not the same as your calling, your vocation. Your vocation is bigger than, but includes what you do for money. And it's most obvious in the case of mothers, right? Because nobody pays mothers anything, but they have a really valuable calling. So their vocation while they're mothers, doesn't overlap at all in many cases with what they do to earn money. Unless they're being paid to look after somebody else's kids at the same time or something. You know, but, but 
what I want to encourage you all to realize is that even when you're working 50, 60 hour weeks in your job, your vocation is still not coterminous with your job. There's a bunch of other things you have to do, a bunch of other things you could do to serve others, to serve your family, responsibilities around the home that you have. And really what, if you get to the point of retirement where, well, I could now leave this job and still not be dependent on other people, what's actually happened is you have a marvelous opportunity because now you can more flexibly embrace more of the other different ways of serving God and his people and the world. Yeah? So let's not think, I get to stop working. Let's think, if I get to that point, I no longer have to do this particular work for financial remuneration if I don't want to, which means I can work elsewhere. I can do other things that people wouldn't normally pay me for, but which would be really good. Two examples. I interviewed um, Delana Brooks of the uh, Pregnancy Help Centre of Fort Worth just a couple of weeks ago, podcast coming out tomorrow. She has a, they've devised a specific programme designed to train volunteers to counsel um, mothers who are, um, have an unplanned, unexpected pregnancy and uh, need advice and to be shown that there are other options other than having an abortion. They have loads and loads of clients, and they never have enough volunteers. They have lots of lady volunteers. They don't have as many men. Occasionally, the guy, the father, shows up at the PHC. Well, wouldn't, wouldn't it be wonderful if, at that point, there were mature, godly, experienced Christian men who could sit down with this 25-year-old who's never had a decent father himself, never had anybody to show him how to take responsibility, and sit there and say, look, this is, your, this is maybe the first chance in your life where you get to do something that could really be a blessing to somebody else. You, you could be a dad and a husband. Now, how about we meet up every week and we talk about how you're going to do this. I'm not going to beat you up. I'm just here to encourage you, to help you, to guide you, to mentor you, to be like your uncle that you never had. You could save children's lives by doing that. Because let me tell you, there are ladies who would have an abortion because the guy is just nowhere to be seen and I can't imagine how I provide for this child myself. Just think well, you, you could save the life of a child by being there to mentor the dad. Not because you're a pastor. Let me tell you, lots of people don't want to listen to a pastor. They want to listen to a former police officer. They want to listen to a guy who was a businessman or an airline pilot or a guy who worked in a factory. There are lots of people who won't listen to me, but they'll listen to you because you've been in the real world in a way that I actually haven't. I spend most of my time talking to people about pastoral things or reading the Bible. I mean, that's, I guess that's probably what you want me to do, right? <laughs> but what it means is a ton of experience I don't have that you do. And retirement is like, great. Now I don't have to fly a plane for a living or um, be a police officer for a living or whatever it is. I can do this to be a blessing to other people. First example, of course, the other is the massively, in, I don't want to say intractable, it feels like the intractable, intractable, intractable problem of caring for the poor. Every Sunday, every single Sunday, you come off I-30 and you turn up Hulan and there's that guy on the corner, you know? And, and you know, like, if... if if you wrote him a cheque for $1,000 and gave it to him, he'd be back there in a month. Because the problem is not that he hasn't got money. It's more complex than that. His life is in a mess. Financially, the trajectory is downwards. 
and the trajectory needs tilting back upwards. And who's going to be there? I mean, who's going to be there to help him? To, it's so long since he had a job, he can't remember what it's like. He's, the, the, the challenge of caring for the very poorest people in our society is not the challenge of figuring out how to get taxpayer funds out of people with jobs into the pockets of people without them. It's the challenge of changing the entire life trajectory of people who found themselves so desperate that they will endure the indignity of standing on a street corner asking for money. Now that is unbelievably time-consuming. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had an army of people who have worked hard during their whole lives to get to the point where they now don't need to carry on working in order to give to others. They can just give to others. Wouldn't it be wonderful if... Oh! <laughs> now, welcome. All you people approaching retirement. You know, actually, this is a gift from Jesus. Um, I was thinking about this in relation to the eschatology Bible studies that we are, I promise you, finally, nearly coming to the end of. Um, uh, one of the things that Jesus has been doing during the whole history of the world since Pentecost has been making the world more wonderful. In consequence of which, we, for the last three generations, we have 300 generations since Adam, but for the last three, we finally have enough money to stop working three quarters of the way through our lives. And there you are, the spirit-filled soldiers in the army of Christ who still have the job of filling and subduing the world. And now you can just do it. Now you could give your pastor a call. I want an email inbox from hell tomorrow morning, please. 80 emails. Hey, pastor, what should I be training for? I'm 48. What should I be training for now so that when I am able to retire in 12 years' time or 15 or 8 years' time, whatever, I'm going to be really... I've got a whole list of things. Delana Brooks is going to email me the training course, right? Then we will have a church that can participate with Christ in his program to transform the world. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for the wealth that we enjoy and for the leisure opportunities that that gives us. We ask, please, would you help us to use that wealth in a gracious, wise, and sacrificial way, knowing that from those to whom much is given, much is required. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.